Isaiah 53 uh, may be the best known chapter out of all the book of Isaiah uh, by uh, Christian believers. Um, It's my understanding that uh, uh, the Jewish people do not pay as much attention to this passage because it's rather pointedly clear that Jesus uh, is the Messiah who suffered on the cross for us. Uh, And one day they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will believe. But for us, this is a very precious uh, chapter, Isaiah 53, that uh, prophesies and foretells the death of our Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. Isaiah begins in this passage by saying, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. Um, Isaiah is telling us that Jesus was born in very humble circumstances. Uh, A shoot uh, oftentimes uh, are those little, uh, we call them suckers perhaps, that people pull off of trees or shrubs that uh, tend to draw the life out of the, you know, out of the tree and so they, they pick it off and throw it away because it's not desirable. And uh, a shoot uh, or a root that's coming out of dry ground, well, roots come out of moist ground, but they typically don't come out of dry ground. And so the implication here is that uh, Jesus also, like a root coming from parched ground, uh, was uh, barely... Uh, surviving as it were, that it was insignificant, that it was something that um, just uh, did not have uh, any uh, vibrancy for life in it. In other words, looking at the origins of Jesus, one would not see in him the, the kingly role that he would play. They would not recognize him as one having authority or being uh, held up as one uh, in kingly power coming from royalty and experiencing especially uh, the the grooming and the, the glory and the wealth and the riches of the palace. But he was one who was... Uh, essentially insignificant as far as human beings go in their value of things. And Isaiah raises the question, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is the power of God to save. Um, David says in one place, he upholds me with his righteous right arm or with his strong right arm the idea is that the arm of God is the arm that saves and rescues and restores and so 
to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This passage is about the one uh, that God is going to use for our salvation. And yet, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. And then Isaiah says he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Um, When we read this section uh, that I have highlighted in our outline in, in pink so that it will stand out for you. In this section, it implies that Jesus was unattractive and unhappy, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He, he was one uh, who had no stately form that uh, we should be attracted to him. And there's a lot of discussion about what this passage means. In fact, most commentators, uh, as they discuss it, um, view it as literally the way that Jesus looked as a man during his lifetime. That's the, the typical and traditional interpretation of that. Uh, the idea being that he was comely, that he was not attractive, that he was not the kind of person to command attention, um, that he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, that he was not one who stood out uh, in, in any sense and seemed to carry a heavy burden and a heavy weight. I have a little bit of trouble with that interpretation of the passage um, for the simple reason that people were attracted to him. They were drawn to him. Sinners were compelled uh, to go in his direction. Um, The religious elite of his day were not particularly enamored by him, but it wasn't because of his appearance. It was because of his teaching. They rejected him because um, they felt that he was usurping uh, a divine role or that he was claiming a, a place that wasn't rightfully his. They didn't see him as having significance in that way. But the common person was drawn to him. The disciples were drawn to him and compelled to follow him. And those whose lives were broken and humiliated by their own failures were drawn to him like a magnet. They, they wanted to get close to him. And he was one who reached out to them. And though he carried heavy burdens, he was filled with joy. He was not a person who went around sad all the time. Um, I was uh, watching a special about uh, Billy Graham last Sunday evening that was put on by Fox News. 
And uh, one of the uh, video clips that, that was included in the overview of his life was when he was preaching uh, the gospel in, in Russia, uh, in Moscow Square. And um, there were in attendance uh, many of the Russian Orthodox priests and uh, if ever, and, I, and I'm not trying to diss them necessarily, but if ever I saw a group of more somber, unhappy people, <laughs> that they stood there with this frown on their face, uh, unmoving, and just uh, cold and steely. And I thought, wow. Um, you know, here's Billy Graham preaching his heart out to the gospel, and there's not even the the turn of a smile. Um, and many people see religion as having that kind of character, and they would see Jesus as having that kind of character, that that he was uh, sad all the time, that he was. Uh, kind of down in the mouth, carrying the weight of the world. Though he did bear the burdens, he did not do so in outward sorrow every day of his life. He, he was full of joy. He was able to laugh. Uh, I think he delighted in, in children. Um, he was a man who was capable of enjoying and having a sense of humor in the moment. Jesus was one that we were drawn to. So how do we reconcile this passage in Isaiah with what we read in the Gospels about the daily presentation that Jesus had uh, for the people around him? And I think if we go back to Isaiah 52, just for a moment, to verse 14. Isaiah 52, 14. You have to have your Bible for this. It's not in the printout. Uh, just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. This is not talking about how he looked on a daily basis. This is talking about how he looked approaching the cross after the Romans had finished beating him and scourging him and uh, preparing him for crucifixion. He was marred more than any man. Um, if we could imagine in our minds, or perhaps you've seen some uh, movie imagery of the beating that was often uh, preceding a crucifixion. Jesus, more than any other, bore the hatred, the disgust, the anger of the people and expressed uh, even through the Romans, but also through the Jewish leadership. He bore that in a horrible beating that left his back in ribbons and shreds and marred his face, and the crown of thorns uh, pierced his brow and blood ran down his face, 
and he was not one to look at. In fact, the scripture says that people turned their face from him. There are some things that are so gruesome, they're hard to behold. And Jesus, in the beating that he received, even before the crucifixion, was left in such a state that he was hard to behold. And so Isaiah says, And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Uh, People turned away from him. And then Isaiah goes on to describe the effect of Jesus' suffering on the cross on our behalf. He says, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Now, when He's talking about the griefs and the sorrows here, He's talking about physical pain and physical suffering. If you compare this to Matthew 8, uh, 17... Matthew 8 describes a day in which Jesus spent the entire day receiving those who were sick and had uh, various and sundry kinds of physical problems, uh, those who were demonized and needed deliverance, uh, the blind, the lame, uh, the crippled in other ways, uh, people that had diseases that no one could cure. And all day long, he spent healing all who were brought to him. The whole day he spent uh, delivering and healing people who had affliction. And in that deliverance and in the healing that he offered throughout the day, Matthew tells us this was to fulfill the scripture, which Isaiah says, Surely he himself bore our griefs and carried our pains. In other words, this passage in Isaiah referring to the cross describes for us the ministry of Jesus in the restoration of healing and deliverance. And we need to recognize that in the payment that Jesus made on the cross, It is not only a covering for sin, but it is a covering for the effects of sin. Before sin was in the world, (coughs) there was no sickness. There were no diseases. Um, The anointing of God was upon Adam and Eve in the garden, and they were free from all kinds of disease and distress. But after sin entered the world, sin began to work its effect on the body. And it began to have an effect in our lives. And it does not mean that uh, we there's a necessarily a direct correlation between my sin and my sickness... There is a correlation between the sin of the world and the sickness to which I'm exposed. 
This is a fallen world. It's a broken world. It's a world that is lost in sin and its effects. And part of the the healing ministry of Jesus, part of the payment that He made on the cross was not only to save our soul and rebirth our spirit, but it is to heal our bodies. Now, let me take just a moment and outline that for you in terms of sequence, because a lot of times uh, we, we get confused about how that all relates. You can have your dead spirit brought to life in the blink of an eye this morning by turning in faith to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. And when you turn to Him in faith for the forgiveness of sin and the cleansing of your life in terms of your offensiveness to God, He brings restoration to your spirit. He brings you to life. We call it born again, although that passage, that phrase is only used a couple of times in Scripture, but we call it born again. We are reborn and the Holy Spirit of God comes into us and gives life to our human spirit. In the blink of an eye, we come alive in Jesus Christ. And then begins a process of His effective work on the cross as he begins to restore us and to to heal i want to say our soul he heals our mind and our will and our emotion he frees us to make right choices instead of being in a bondage of the will to making bad choices he frees us to make right choices He renews our mind that we might think God's thoughts and perceive God's will and purpose for life. And he restores the capacity to have an emotional life that is free from bondage, that drags us down in despair and uh, in all other kinds of, of emotions that are, are uh, damaging to us. So that through the renewing of our mind and the freedom of our will, as we seek the Lord, we can find the joy that He has to give. And we are also promised in the future the resurrection of the body. There will come a time when every person in Jesus Christ, no matter when they lived and when they died, will be raised from the grave, incorruptible, to live eternally in God's presence. That is the ultimate final healing of our bodies to immortality. And as an earnest of that future promise of total healing and resurrection, there is the potential for healing 
of the lesser kinds of physical problems today. In other words, we can have a foretaste of the healing of the body now. And the basis of that is in the atonement because Jesus paid the price not only for sin, but for deliverance from its effects. So that we can come to him and ask for healing. And I, I will say honestly that God does not necessarily heal every single person from every single thing that they ask for. But that should not hold us back from healing because if he doesn't heal in the moment, he can reveal to us his purposes and his plans in our lives. But he is also free to heal. So James says, is there anyone sick among you? Let that one call for the elders of the church and let them pray over that person, anointing them with oil. And the prayer of faith will save or restore the sick and God will raise that one up. For the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. And so we are encouraged to come to him for healing. And it is on the basis of Isaiah chapter 53. He goes on to say, He was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Reading down from your notes, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. I want us to recognize this morning that no one took Jesus' life from him. That he submitted himself to the cross on our behalf out of his love for us. Do you recall in John's Gospel after the Last Supper and Jesus and his disciples have gone out to a place to pray and he is kneeling before the Father some distance away, anticipating all that the cross would mean in his life. And soon the sound 
of a crowd is heard as soldiers begin to approach that place where Judas had told them they could find him. And they come and ask for him. Whom do you seek? The question is put. And they said, we are looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus steps forward and he says, I am he. And what do they do? They fall to the ground. Literally what he said was, I am. And it's the same Greek verb form that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. Whom shall I say sent me? And the voice from the bush says, you tell them I am that I am sent you. I am is the eternal one. That's what it literally means. I am the eternal one. And Jesus says very simply, I am. And they fall to the ground like dead men. And then he allows them to rise and he willingly goes with them. Jesus chose the cross on our behalf. He was not trapped. He was not forcefully arrested. He was not crucified because uh, he was found to be a criminal and there was nothing uh, he could do to stop the unfolding of events. Every step of the way he submitted himself like a lamb before its shearers he uttered not a word he submitted himself every step of the way he allowed himself to be beaten he allowed his beard to be plucked he allowed the soldiers to spit in his face he allowed the thrones to be pressed into his brow the, the thorns. He allowed himself to be nailed to the cross even as he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He permitted himself to do all of those things on our behalf. And it was the Father who poured out his wrath upon him. Notice those passive verbs. He was crushed for us. He was bruised for us. He was scourged for us. All of his punishment that was poured out upon him was poured out as the wrath of God upon sinners because Jesus bore the sin of the world as he took that place on the cross. Have you thought about that lately? We're a 
approaching that time of year where we specifically remember and highlight our Lord's death and crucifixion and resurrection. And we anticipate the thoughts about what it meant for him. But there is a word that's used in the New Testament. It's difficult to fully translate and comprehend. You can find it in Romans, Hebrews, and 1 John, as I have mentioned it here in the notes. It's the word propitiation. And what it means in the best way that we can define it or translate it is that Jesus was a satisfactory appeasement of God's wrath. That God in his anger towards sin and in his punishment towards sin was pleased to pour all of that upon Jesus who became unto God an aroma that was a satisfactory appeasement of the wrath that God experienced. In other words, His life was sufficient to cover our sin. As the Scripture says, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Friends, Jesus Christ took all of our sin upon Himself. And not ours only, but the sins of the whole world. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have life everlasting. The fact that He bore the sin of the world does not mean that every person in the world is automatically saved. It means that the potential is there for every human being to be born again. But it requires a recognition of our need for a Savior, our willingness to repent of our sin, and our acceptance of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And in doing that, every single person who makes that decision, the atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross is sufficient to cover their sin. The blood will never lose its power. It will never run dry. The, the well of salvation will never become empty. It will always be there as a resource for every person who turns in faith to Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord and the sin bearer of their own iniquity and rejection of God. And the, the triune God 
may I use the word conspired, not in a negative way. But the triune God conspired to effect our salvation. So that Jesus, the God man, became the sin bearer by his willing choice. And the father poured his wrath out upon him because he was pleased to accept the sacrifice. And the Holy Spirit, who on the cross left him as he bore the sin of the world, came back and restored him to life in resurrection and became available to us to restore us to life. Just as we are buried with Christ by baptism into death, so we are raised by Christ to life eternal in Him. And all that happened there on Calvary was the work of God for us that we might be restored to Him. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that amazing? Some say, how is it that God could how is it that Jesus could bear the sins of all the world? He was but one man. But he was the God-man. He was able to bear our sin because he was a perfect man who never once disobeyed the Father from birth until His death on the cross, He was sinless. And as a man, He took Adam's place. And as a man, He fulfilled what Adam failed to do. He was the second man in the last Adam. And as a man, he lived as God intended human beings to live. In perfect obedience in everything. Jesus Christ was perfect. But as God, he was infinite. And so whatever he accomplished as a man, as God, he accomplished infinitely, without bounds, without limitation. And so he could bear the sin of not just one other person, but as the infinite God, he could bear the sins of all who will trust Him. And His blood is capable of cleansing all who turn to Him from sin. Our Lord Jesus Christ poured Himself out for us. Notice what Isaiah says in the next, the last verse.
Chandler in the last verse. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Therefore, at the beginning of the verse, I will allot him a portion with the great. Our Lord Jesus, who suffered for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Well, the second chapter I was going to expose us to this morning is Isaiah 58. I'm just simply going to pick up a highlight from this chapter. Isaiah 58 talks about fasting. And this directly applies to fasting, but it can also apply to any other commitment to God, experience with God, prayer time. The way the chapter begins is the people of Israel... Whenever they call for a fast or some religious experience, they do so without paying any attention to their own sin, and they do so for the purpose of getting whatever it is that they want. They continue to violate the Sabbath, they continue to work their servants. They continue to seek to make money. They don't want to give up any of their uh, time uh, in the interest of seeking God. They just want to declare this fast and uh, put on some sackcloth and some ashes and uh, let everybody see how religious they are, but inside they have no real desire to pursue God. And then as the passage goes on, God says, Is this not the fast that I have declared to set the captives free, to bring deliverance to those who are in bondage? And as he begins to describe it, God says, You do not fast like you fast. If you want me to do anything for you. The fast that I have chosen is a fast that comes from your whole heart. Where everything you have is set aside. In the pursuit of me. Some people say, why do we fast? Why should we fast? Isn't that kind of old fashioned? People don't fast anymore, do they? Well, the reason that we fast is not because we can twist God's arm, go on a hunger strike and get him to do what we want. The reason we fast is to say to him, you're more important even than my food. You're more important to me than anything. I'll set aside my meals and seek your face. You are the number one 
person in my life. And I want to set aside time to pursue you alone. In another place, God says, And you shall seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. And so the essence of chapter 58 is to call to mind that if we want to see God do amazing things, we must pursue Him with all of our being. Even at times setting aside food to seek His face and to pursue Him. Fasting is not just a religious activity. (laughs) Fasting is a devoted pursuit of God that places Him at the focus of our lives. Have you experienced God's appointed fast? Have you ever taken time to set all the cares of life aside and seek Him with all your heart? That's the purpose. And as we do that, we will come to know more fully this Jesus who gave himself for us. Remember what Paul said to the Philippians? He said, I have given up everything for the sake of knowing him, that I might know him, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, that I might truly know Jesus Christ. Is that the number one goal of your life? Father, I pray this morning that you would open our hearts and minds to the truth of your word, and that as we consider these passages in Isaiah, Lord Jesus, we cannot thank you enough for the willingness that you have expressed in going to the cross for us. And Heavenly Father, for accepting the payment of our Lord's life upon the cross, that through the Holy Spirit we might be born again and come back into eternal life and fellowship with you. We praise you, O God. And we pray that you would lead us in our lives to put you as the focus and object of our passion and our love and even at times to forsake all the needful things of life, even food, to pursue you with a whole heart. Because you have promised that we would come to you and find you and know you when we search for you with all of our being. Make us that kind of people, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.